Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. So people come to me, you know, and they get introduced to buyers from around the world. And I'm intentionally very direct at first because I don't want people to be misled as to what I can do for them. And I typically would tell you know, during a first meeting to a potential buyer that I want him to be aware of the fact that he's looking at acquiring an asset that will never make money. Welcome to Coffee and Football. I'm Sebastian Alvarado, and I'm the host of this interview-style podcast where I sit down with some of the most interesting profiles involved in the game to learn about their lives and career journeys. Today's guest is Jérôme de Bontem, and let me ask you, is that a fair pronunciation? I can tell you from Europe, because you pronounce it better than most people. Maybe better than my English, right? <laughs> He's one of the most influential executives in the global game and has been in multiple different positions. Perhaps the ones he's been most known for have been as the president of AS Monaco and as the GM of the New York Red Bulls. He's one of the savviest and most well-rounded people I've come across, and I'm pretty sure you'll understand why after listening to this episode. Please enjoy Jérôme, it's an honor to, to have you here. Uh, thank you for, for taking the time. Uh, this is truly a conversation that I've been looking forward to. So uh, welcome to Coffee and Football. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be in New York. Um, and thank you for your kind words about AS Monaco and the New York Red Bulls. When in fact, probably the, the soccer position that I'm the proudest of is the one that I hold as chairman of the Rush Soccer Organization. Uh, because we have almost now 50,000 kids worldwide who play under the Rush banner. And I feel that it is one of the areas where possibly I'm having the greatest impact in terms of doing it right. That's fantastic. And I'm sure there is, well, I'm sure there is quite a bit that you can draw from your experience and now putting the, the passion and the energy all, all into that program. For those of us who have played the game or who share the passion for the game, 
it's easy to be excited about being involved in soccer. You know, whether you are a coach, or whether you are a referee, or whether you preside over a local youth club, or whether you coach a professional team or uh, president of a team, at the end of the day, what keeps you going is really the passion for the game and the fact that you, know, you have this opportunity to be involved. I have a question that I typically open with and I ask everybody, and I have to. Because the, the theme of this is, is coffee and football. So uh, I have to ask you, one, uh, do you like coffee? And two, if so, how do you drink it? I do drink too much coffee, meaning that I do like coffee. Um, I take it black. Caffeine and I get along just fine. How are things today? What are you, uh, what are you currently keeping yourself busy with? I, I'm very busy with sports in general. Um, so I advise buyers and sellers of professional teams, and I've been involved in a few acquisitions over the past two years. Um, but I'm also very involved with skiing. Um, I own some real estate, and I've made some major investment in a ski resort called Taos Ski Valley. Uh, Taos Ski Valley is not as well known as, say, Vail or Aspen, but it probably has much better skiing than Vela Naspen. Where is it located? It's located north of Santa Fe. So it's in the northeast corner of New Mexico. And it's a place that my wife and I discovered in the mid-80s. And we fell in love with it in part because of the weather, in part because of the skiing, but also because it's a little bit of a European enclave. The main hotel there is called the Saint Bernard. And it was founded by a Frenchman who still runs it. Uh, the the head of ski school is French, and then most of the other people who work there are either Swiss or Austrian or Italian. So it's quite extraordinary to go through the West as we imagine it and arrive in this alpine setting at 9,000 feet and hear German, Italian, French and have this very relaxed atmosphere that you have in some of the European resorts. So we fell in love with the place, and then we realized that there was an opportunity potentially of turning Taos Kivale into the next Courchevel or the next Verbier or the next Aspen. And we invested a lot of money and things now are starting to happen with a new airport, new hotel, new buildings. So I'm really sharing my time for the most part between northern New Mexico, Chicago and New York, and then obviously Monaco and Europe where I've kept a lot of businesses. As it relates to the ski resort first, just touching on that, where do you mainly apply your expertise to that? And how does that express itself? I think there are a lot of attributes that are true to all sports. Um, I so happen to have known the president of the U.S. ski team for a long, long time. And through Prince Albert, who's been an important part of my life and in some fashion responsible for my involvement in professional soccer, through him I got to meet many Olympic athletes and many successful coaches, uh, people who in reality have a lot in common, even though tennis and skiing and soccer may be very different discipline, you realize that you know, the requirements for success and the sacrifices that need to be made, the love for competition uh, are all common to more sports. Uh, so when it comes to skiing, which is an individual sport more than it is in soccer, there is still this requirement that you be fit 
to play soccer, that you acquire the skill to succeed in soccer, and that in fact that you need a team around you to succeed. And if you look at the U.S. ski team, for instance, uh, it's done better and better over the past 20 years. Not so much because we were fortunate to have, you know, Aileen Zevon or some other successful skiers, but because there was a real team focusing on getting the U.S. Ski Federation to succeed. Uh, and to that extent, when I meet with Bill Merrott, with this friend who was president of the U.S. Ski Team for so long, and we compare our notes about you know, the requirements for soccer and the requirements for skiing, we do realize that we are from the same world. Do you ski or snowboard? I ski. How would you describe what it is that you do to somebody who who has no relation to you or, or sports for that matter? I think if you were to ask my wife what I do, I think it's usually a good test. Um, often you say, ask my mom and see what she says. Unfortunately, I lost my mom a few years ago. Um, but if you were to ask my wife, she would probably tell you that, you know, he's a passionate soccer person who runs a small boutique investment firm uh, with various fields uh, of interest, such as ski resorts, um, the soccer business, and the environment. One of my business relates to impact investing and distributing some very high-end products for investors who have an appetite for what certain would call socially responsible investing um, or, or others would call ESG. Um, I like the term environmental finance because it's all about using the tools of finance to improve the planet and the environment that we're living in. What would uh, an example be? The obvious example that you know, people can relate to is when we speak about renewable energy. It seems to be the simple fact that if we can heat the home or cool a home uh, with electricity that we generate from solar panel, that it's probably a better thing for the air that we breathe than to use coal or, or regular fuel. Um, and that's been a trend now for 20 years with some very successful industries, whether it's wind, solar, and all sorts of new technologies that are quite fascinating, such as nowadays the ability to capture the energy of waves. Um, with potentially in the future for most coastal areas, like you know, New York City, where we are today, uh, the ability to derive a lot of its necessary energy from the waves of the ocean. You mentioned being active in investing or advising in, um, in deals that are made or acquisitions in the, in the football world. Mm -hmm. Can you give me a couple of examples of... Maybe a couple of concrete examples, and then also at what point do you come in in that process, and what does that look like? So no, I will not give you any concrete examples, because all those transactions are confidential, uh, understanding that most of them do not materialize. You have a, sort of a new population of potential investors The one that you read about are either Chinese or the Russian or the Middle Easterns, but they're also Americans, you know, particularly Americans who've developed an interest for the English Premier League, but also now for the Serie A or in, even for the League One or League Two. My role is you know, both on the front end of 
voicing an opinion on the merit of one team versus another, uh, maybe more so with the French teams or the Swiss teams than the others. Um, but on the other side, I'm often on the receiving side when people are being contacted by buyers to, to comment on the authenticity of the potential buyer about you know, the long-term objective of the potential buyers. Very much like the, the trading of player, it's not a transparent world when it comes to, to buying and selling teams. Uh, the legal structure of most clubs in Europe is a fairly complicated one. It's not just one owner, as you may have with American sports, deciding to sell to another owner. You know, for instance, to take a simple example like France, you know, to operate a professional football club, you need a license. And licenses can only be held by a non-for-profit organization. So whenever someone is going to step in to buy a French team or attempt to buy a French team, he has to acknowledge that on one side, he may be buying an LLC that runs the professional team, but that it can, he cannot acquire the non-for-profit that holds the license, which in many cases still has some significant authority in terms of managing the facilities and in some cases even managing the academies. Uh, so there's a real need for people with expertise to, I think, put the potential buyer at ease and at the same time to comfort the sellers that they're not selling the team to someone who's going to try to move it to another town. You know, that doesn't exist in Europe. It happens a lot in the States where someone will buy a football team and move it to a bigger town. Um, and some Americans have come to me with that notion of, can we buy a team in the south of France and move it to the north of France? Or can we buy a team in Italy and have it play in France and that type of thing? Can we buy Monaco and have Monaco play in the EPL? It, it makes you smile because you're very familiar with the world of soccer. But for those who look at soccer team as other assets or similar assets to professional teams, in the States, um, there's a pretty steep learning curve that they need to go through. Um, so I've been a party to a number of deals, um, more if not materialized than not, but doesn't mean the work was not substantial. Uh, and it's a growing field. So it's one area where 10 years ago, it would have been difficult to imagine that so many Chinese would come and buy clubs. You, you probably read recently that you know, a Chinese group bought AC Milan. Um, another Chinese group is obviously Money Inter. Um, another Chinese group is buying into second division teams in France. And one bought in Sochaux, the other one bought or is buying into Auxerre. Uh, and the sum of all those, plus all the Americans, were bought into Crystal Palace and Bournemouth. Um, and Swampsea and yeah. um, obviously the Liverpool and Manchester United it's sort of mind-boggling because uh, it's just casting a different net around the world of professional soccer which makes it exciting for me because it means more work um, but sometimes I think back of what it once was and I wonder whether soccer players went out better served when it wasn't so corporate correct um Am I naive in making the assumption that perhaps even a majority of potential investors or buyers aren't always very sophisticated? 
I think to the contrary, the, the newcomers are greatly more sophisticated than the sellers. And in many ways, that's what is attracting investors to the world of soccer. They read those headlines, but, you know, a 23-year-old Frenchman, Pogba being sold 420 million. And they ask themselves, you know, how can that be? That player was let go for no money four years before. What an incredible profit. Um, and I had myself this reaction 15 years ago when I got involved with the, the board of IS Monaco 16 years ago, wondering myself, well, how does anyone come up with a rational explanation as to why this player is worth half a million and this other one is worth five. And you know, I come from the futures market in Chicago and I spent many years on the floor of the exchange trading futures and trading options where there is an open outcry and where you know, the price at which a commodity is traded is the result of the highest bid and the lowest offer. Um, and it's liquid and it's transparent. The world of soccer does not offer any of that. So I got pretty curious as to trying to identify what was at play and realized indeed that the spreads were so wide that for those who could be so-called market makers, i.e. the owners of the team, the people who are part of the trading, that, that there might be a real opportunity for investors to generate great return. And if you look at the people who have invested in the teams, be it in England, be it in on continental Europe, you find quite a few of them with financial background, recognizing that you know, as long as that spread, this lack of transparency exists, that there might be very good money to be made. Now, there's another layer you know, of investors who've also you know, looked at the value of teams in relationship to the media rights that they generate, uh, comparing often you know, EPL to the NFL or MLB or the NBA and recognizing that potentially the EPL teams are trading or were trading at the major discount to the U.S. team and thus you know, acquiring a majority stake or a significant stake into an EPL team without it being necessarily Manchester United or Arsenal or Chelsea, but more the Reading or Swansea or Crystal Palace of our world that they potentially is a very... No, great return attached to that investment, independently of how successful this new owner might be at buying and selling players. Is the motivation always a financial incentive? Or, or where is the kind of borderline to... Because, again, going back to sports and the history of sports, it's a lot about the emotional values and cultural values, uh, especially as you look at teams in Europe. Um, so people come to me. You know, and I get introduced to buyers from around the world. Um, and I'm intentionally very direct at first because I don't want people to be misled as to what I can do for them. And I typically would tell you know, during a first meeting to a potential buyer that I want him to be aware of the fact that he's looking at acquiring an asset that will never make money. And it doesn't matter whether he wants to buy an MLS team or whether he wants to buy a Division Three team in a championship in Europe, the reality of soccer is that the more games you win, the more money you're going to spend on players. And therefore, there's no EBITDA to speak of. 
uh, the money that's being generated, if you have a lucky year because you sell a Pogba or you know a mini version of Pogba, or because TV White went up, strangely enough, all those teams find a way to spend all this new money on players. And the reason for that, and it's one thing that I want all those potential buyers to understand, is that fame and success get to your head pretty quickly. That while you may think of yourself as simply an investor, history tells us that the moment your picture is in the paper, that your name is recognized, and that you in fact become a more public person than the CEO of the large corporation, um, that your perspective on the purpose of your investment, or at least the initial purposes of your investment, change. And therefore, there is in some situation, you know, a group of buyers that, that would, a new owner that would categorize it being, as being driven by ego eventually, more so than by profit. Yeah, it's an, uh, it's an interesting point. I, it's, it was a few years ago, I read a really good piece um, talking about Florentino Perez in, in Real Madrid. And he spent a, f- a fair bit of money. And they were talking about the, uh, the VIP boxes at the, at the Bernabeu. And how essentially what the piece was saying was that it, it's almost, he's almost more attracted by meeting you know, other business people and being the big guy in the city in Madrid than necessarily looking at at the team or or that you know uh the the return on on what he was doing with the team and funneling obviously a lot of money into the team to be seen with all these royals and and the most important businessmen around there um shifting gears a little bit take me through a typical day in in your life so from the moment you get up, what time do you get up? And from there on, what kinds of routines do you have? Uh, any workouts, any readings, uh, and so on. So you don't recover from 15 years in the financial markets, uh, particularly if you live in Chicago, because the futures market you know, typically open at 7 a.m. Um, so for conscious professionals, it was always a requirement to be in the office at least an hour before. So you're talking 6 a.m. into the office, meaning that you get up at 4.30 or 5. Now, maybe over the years, I have learned to sleep an extra 15 or you know 30 minutes, but I still get up at 5, 5.30. It's sort of part of my DNA now. Uh, so the futures market open at 7. They typically close, except for the S&P 500, you know, around 2 p.m., and then you'd be home by 4, which in many ways, you know, contributed a lot to my ability to continue to be involved with the sport. The children were born, and you know, they obviously had for requirement to play soccer. They wanted to have dinner at the dinner table. Uh, and I had two sons and one daughter, and the three of them played. But because I was home by 4 or 4.30 for many years, I was quite able to coach you know, and be involved with the, the local community club and grew from coaching into the... Uh, refereeing and the officiating and being on, on those boards, finding my way to the U.S. Soccer Federation Foundation. But from those days, I've certainly kept you know the bad sleeping habits, uh, i.e., having to go to bed early and then getting up you know, quite early. You know, my world has changed, you know, I, but I still check the market. I think once you've been exposed to foreign exchange and interest rates and everything that comes with it, you realize that 
whatever happens in the world is being reflected in the market. So it's a great way to be informed. In the past, I would probably look at a boom but scream, and now I've learned to use Twitter, which I find to be an incredible informative tool because you obviously choose the people you want to read and you're able in 10, 15 minutes to get the news of the night and what seems to be of importance that morning. Um, so it, it's sort of my first thing in the morning now, it's to, to check Twitter. And I know more people do it than are willing to admit it, but it, it's, it saves a lot of time and it's very efficient. Is that something you do already in bed, the first thing you do, or do you actually get up and then no, do it? No, no, we very, my wife is very strict in terms of uh, electrical waves and anything that enter the bedroom that would be foreign. So we, we leave the phone and the iPad and the computer you know, in the office or the living room. And, and if not, it's because maybe I don't sleep and I want to play a game of Sudoku. Uh, <laughs> the iPad has to be on airplane mode. Um, otherwise, uh, she, the iPad and I get kicked out of the bedroom. Um, so no, I, I get up first, uh, drink my coffee now and back to coffee and, not to Red Bull as during my New York years. Um, but then a lot of the work, like most people I think nowadays, is done on the computer. A lot of the communication with Asia, obviously, and, and Europe and the Middle East is done by email. And depending on, you know, the, the time of the day and the kind of deal I'm working on, uh, it's either a lot of Skype conversation or, or phone conversation. But but I should preclude that by saying when I'm home, because unfortunately, anyway, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, it's, it can be looked at two different ways. Uh, the kids are grown up now, so it's easier to travel. But like most people, I like to be home and be surrounded by my things. Uh, but my work requires extensive traveling. So whether it's New Mexico or whether it's New York or Europe, um, so the, the, the typical day is very much like I described recognizing that I'm on the road extensively. Well, that's fortunate for me because uh, you came here to to visit the Coffin Football headquarters. And they're very nice. <laughs> Pleasure to be in New York. In fact, soccer drove me back to New York. Uh, you may have seen that, or you may have read that I've been involved with the U.S. Soccer Foundation for yeah. almost 20 years. And uh, the money that is being granted every year to all the recipients who apply for grants is generated by a fund, you know, the, the corpus of the foundation, which in many ways is still you know, the, the sum of all the profit of the 1994 World Cup that some of us have been managing for the foundation since about 97. And we meet several times a year, and this week is one of those times where we all get together to look at the portfolio and decide what to do next. So it's a happy coincidence that you know, soccer brings me to New York and we get a chance to, to chat. About soccer. How many people and, and what are the different people that are in, in, involved in that this week when you sit down? They're typically people with a similar you know, background as mine, meaning people who like the sport, but who have a financial background. Uh, but we've had with us from the very beginning Alan Rothenberg, you know, to you know, whom we know we owe the foundation because had it, had it not been for his savviness in the way he managed the 94 World Cup, there would have been no profit and the foundation would have never been funded. 
And in many ways, um, not to tap him on the shoulder too much, but the, the reality of where we are today in terms of the sport of soccer, including MLS, you know, owe a lot to Alan Rothenberg. Uh, had it not been for, again, the profit of 94, you could even argue, had it not been for getting the World Cup in the first place, which we, we might not have got without Alan, uh, but without the profit of the World Cup, you know, MLS would have had a much harder time being funded since the foundation was the angel investor in MLS and into many other projects subsequently. Uh, but, you know, we pride ourselves, you know, I played a minor role, but for all of us who've been involved with the foundation, we pride ourselves of having a terrific organization that many countries have tried to replicate um, with difficulties, mostly because very few countries have been able to produce a World Cup as profitable as the 94 one, and for the record, it is to this day still the most profitable World Cup ever. Really? Yeah. Well, what do you attribute that to? Well, there was a novelty of the event. You know, almost every stadium was sold out. Uh, the, the pricing of the event you know, was at the time judged to be high, uh, but comparable to what Americans were accustomed to paying for baseball, or football, or basketball, it was quite acceptable. The fact that you know, the TV rights you know, sold internationally, uh, more so than they had with the previous World Cup, and maybe more importantly, and to all the credit of all the volunteers you know, who got involved, I think you know, the Federation managed to stimulate hundreds of thousands of volunteers across all the host cities uh, to make sure that it could be done at a reasonable cost. Uh, in the end, it, it was so well done that there was a profit. I don't remember the exact amount, but fifty million or more of ninety-four money. Percentage-wise, what what kind of profitability are we looking oh, at? Oh, I don't know what the EBITDA would be on the organization of the event. What I can tell you is that nobody at FIFA believed that it would ever be profitable. Um, and in many ways, what Alan was a bit criticized at the time because you know he's compensation was based on the profitability of the event, um, but that he got a pretty significant paycheck because he got a percentage of the profit. Uh, but, you know, I think it's trading with you know, hindsight or back trading because the reality of it, nobody believed that the World Cup would ever generate a profit. And it did, and not only did it generate a profit, as I said, but it laid the ground you know, for a funding mechanism that allowed the sports to grow now, maybe not as fast as I would have liked, or maybe not to the stage where I thought we should be, but certainly if you compare where we are now to where we were in 92 or 93, we've gone a long way. Yeah, and I think, I agree with you, I think there is still, and hopefully we'll we'll get a chance to t- touch on that as well, there's still a lot to a lot to improve on. It could be much better. It could be. Hopping onto a different track here, uh, I just want to touch a little bit on your upbringing and uh, and start. So you were born in. It's very international. I'm I'm born of a Swedish mother and a French father. Uh, I married an Austrian a woman, Austrian, not Australian. <laughs> One gets confused for the other easily. Um, I was fortunate that my dad was always a big fan of America. You know, he was born in 1930. And he came to America after the war in 1946 with a theater group. 
Um, what did he do? Well, he was still in high school, but okay. you know, when the war ended, uh, it, those were two planets. You know, the, the European continent had been destroyed by war, and then North America that had continued to grow. He, he tells incredible stories of you know, leaving France, where people still could not eat. You know, the way they wanted and then getting into the New York Harbor on a big ship and seeing all those lights and all those cars and they had not had fuel in France for five years but important feature that my dad who's still alive today is a big fan of America and therefore when I grew up he encouraged my brothers and, and my sister to come and you know, spend time here as exchange students um, none of my brothers or sister were interested, but I was. So I, I first came, I think when I was 12, and found myself spending a summer in Palmyra, New York. If you don't know where that is, that's where the Kodak factory used to be. And uh, it was a terrific experience. Um, it was a family of, what we call, seven children. and They played sport all day, which I thought was just great. So I came back the following year, and I was sent to Clear Lake, Iowa, yeah, which is another part of America, uh, which I really enjoy. I enjoyed it so much I went back the following year. But so as I went to my teenage years, I think I got not brainwashed, but well prepared to recognize that for somebody who likes sport and who is somewhat dynamic and ambitious, that America would be a great place. Now, studying in America costs a lot of money. You, you all know that. Uh, particularly compared to the universities in Europe, you know, which for the most part are free. So when I started talking about coming to study in America, uh, my dad was very encouraging, but you know he had to bring the reality back to life in saying you know, it cost, uh, at the time, it was 10000 a year to go study at Amherst College where I ended going. You know, $10,000 in 1978 were a lot of money, particularly when my brothers and sisters were studying for free. Um, but he did say that if I managed to find a scholarship or a fellowship or some way to get there, that you know, he would eventually help you know, to complement whatever would be needed. And that's why I applied to a number of schools, um, not knowing what Amherst was, um, and, and not to say anything negative about other schools. I could have ended going to many different parts of this country you know, in less prestigious school and be as happy as I ended being at Amherst. Uh, Amherst turned out to be an extraordinary place. And, and that's in Massachusetts. Amherst, right? Massachusetts. It's Western Mass. It's really next to Northampton, and it's you know, north of Springfield, uh, Mass. Um, and to my delight, you know, which I didn't know when I arrived, uh, Amherst College at the soccer team, and quite a good one. Um, was fortunate to meet the coach, who's remained a very close friend, Peter Gooding, um, who welcomed me on the team and I spent those years playing with this group. And all those soccer players have remained friends. And over the years, and now it's 35 years since I graduated, we continue to get together. Uh, we're not as fast or as skilled or as good as we once were, but we certainly like to get together to play soccer. So What's we, your position? I'm a number eight. So number eight is sort of, you know, I know he was number 10, but I like to think of the way I play, the way Michel Platini played. Um, and he's become a friend, so it's easy for me 
to talk about him, um, but I thought that, you know, he played the way I wanted to play, had this ability to be in many ways all over the field and yet be more of a creative player than a defensive one and then score goals. I've always liked to score goals and I continue to play and when I come home on Saturday night after my games, the first question I get from my wife is, did you score? And of course. If I didn't score, I said, all oh, the other things than scoring goals, but they're not. <laughs> if you don't score, you sleep on the couch. <laughs> Something like that. But, um, so th that's a position I play. I've been fortunate to be born fast, you know, and it helps in soccer, particularly at the early age where skills are not yet required. Um, so I always felt that I was more successful playing you know, soccer than I was playing basketball or playing tennis. Uh, I like the camaraderie aspect of soccer, that it was a, a team sport. And we played on the schoolyard and we played after recess and we played at the end of the day. And, and over the years, the speed became less important. Uh, but clearly, I always felt comfortable playing soccer and therefore having a chance to get to Amherst, be in the States, be part of the soccer team. And to top it off, have Prince Albert for a teammate, um, made for a pretty interesting. Is that life. where you met? Yeah, we met there. We met there. We met there the first or second practice and he was an avid reader of L'Equipe, um, which is a daily sport paper at the time. So now we're 1978 probably where, you know, no cell phone, obviously no internet, but because of who he was, he was fortunate to get you know, a pouch every, you know, twice a week with the previous, you know, the previous week's equipe. So that's how we got to read. I remember at the time, the, the Monday edition of equipe was a yellow paper. We would read the soccer result together and I mean, soccer and other things, but maybe soccer more than other things. Uh, it had a lot to do to seal our friendship. Did you have any goals at a young age of what you wanted to become? Yeah, uh, I met my wife on my 17th birthday, so way before I went to Amherst. Um, but we courted throughout all those years, and eventually she joined me at Amherst for my senior year. And uh, I recall clearly talking about what my goal objective, my life objectives were, and they were fairly simple. I would say you know, getting married, uh, owning a house, and making $30,000 a year. Uh, one other thing I didn't want to do, uh, I remember being very direct about this, that to achieve that, the 30000 a year in the house, I would go anywhere in the world except New York City. <laughs> but guess what? The only job I got graduating from college was in New York City, uh, working for an investment firm on Wall Street, uh, which goes to show that you know you tend to adjust your own objectives according to what happens to you in life. Um, but those were the aspirations when I graduated from college. Now, they obviously changed over the years, but I think they've still remained somewhat tempered and moderate. Then what became your um, your first real involvement in, in working with, uh, with football? As I said earlier, I kept playing, and I still play. Yep. I score most every Saturday, but not every Saturday. I scored on Saturday. And what are we today? Tuesday. So I scored three days ago and I'll play again on Saturday. Um, the involvement never stopped. But as I said earlier, it went from coaching to officiating. I really enjoyed 
officially. I think refereeing is an exercise that most soccer people should go through. And clearly, just to don't touch on that briefly, I don't know that any announcer on TV, a journalist, or former player should be allowed to comment on the referee's decision um, until they've passed the exam and demonstrated they understand the rules. Because most of you who've played the game and comment on what is a PK, not a PK, sorry to say that to you, but you don't know the rules. When was the last time you went to the rule book and read what the rules say? Um, and therefore, you know, Panthers closes. Um, officiating was great. Um, and then I joined the board of the local club that was on the North Shore of Chicago where we lived and got to meet the president of the youth association. And at the time, you know, all of the youth uh, playing was you know, governed by USYS, US Youth Soccer. There was no US club and AYSO was, you know, fairly marginal only in California and a few parts of the Northeast. Uh, and this gentleman was himself involved with the organization of the 1994 World Cup because Chicago was you know, a host city. I think it hosted the first game, um, a couple more. Um, and he, in turn, when the foundation was created, uh, was told by you know, his friend on the Federation, remember that the Federation has been headquartered in Chicago for a long time now, uh, whether he knew of any you know, soccer person with financial background for the foundation. And that's how I was introduced, you know, from my local club to the U.S. organization. In Europe, it's quite different. I mean, I've always maintained a presence in Europe, and we have a family home in Burgundy near the town of Auxerre, uh, which if you follow soccer, I'm sure you you know of, you probably don't know that's where Eric Cantona grew up, but oh, I yes. do. <laughs> and um, through the local community, the president of Auxerre was very close to my friend. You know, I also got exposed um, and in a way developed my network of friends among you know, owners, president, GM, coaches. Uh, so I felt very much at ease getting involved with the foundation in the U.S., and, then different thing happened, and eventually Prince Albert asked me to join the board of IS Monaco. I think in 2000 or 2001, and I sat on that board, and, and it was a very demanding board because uh, IS Monaco is a prestigious club. The principality, you know, it's a small town. There are only 7,000 Monegasque, uh, meaning people with the nationality of Monaco. Uh, and only about 30,000 plus people living in the principality. Um, so it's far from being in Manchester or London or Paris. And yet it's soccer team, more often than not, would do better than Manchester or PSG and other team of that stature. Therefore, it was a very intense time that culminated in 2000, in the summer of 2007, when Prince Albert asked if I would step in for a very special purpose as president of IS Monaco, um, which I did pro bono, really to, to serve the prince and face the challenges of the time, but never with the intent of staying past uh, this mission that I had to accomplish. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, You won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. You mentioned the becoming part of the board first. Uh, it was very demanding. Uh, in, in what sense? And what did your role look like more in the in, in practicality we had had um a very successful president um, someone who had been appointed by prince renier and who deserved much of the credit for what the club became um, not only in terms of winning trophies you know, so many championships and so many fa cups but also for building an academy that to this day remains probably the, the best one in France, if not in Europe, um, in the selection of coaches who came and went. You know, Arsene Wenger being obviously the the most well-known of them all, but if you go through the list, you know, you will find that even Ranieri, in fact, coached Monaco, but that came later. But Didier Deschamps and... Jeanne Petit and Jean Tigana, I mean, all, all prestigious name of French soccer came through Monaco. Now, by the end of his tenure as president, unfortunately, the laws had changed with the Bosman decision you know, after the 98 World Cup, which impacted our club particularly because we had this strong academy at a time where you had the right to sign a 16-year-old player to a five-year contract meaning that you could sign a 17-year-old until he was 22 and you know, generate some pretty significant return for the club of those players that you were developing. Well, laws change and suddenly you cannot, you could no longer sign a 17-year-old to any more than a one-year contract until he became an adult, you know, at the age of 18, at which point you had to renegotiate. But losing in many ways all the benefit of the work you had done because you would invest in that player at 16 with the assumption that he would be with you until that day where you could sell him to a better, wealthier club. Well, unfortunately, with this change, uh, at 18, you had to renegotiate and you were at no more advantage in the negotiation than you, the people from Juventus or Inter or Marseille or, you know, eventually most British clubs, and Portmouth was one of those that took many of our players at that age. You know, it was a mistake on the part of the players to leave so early, but the money was so attractive that you know we, we could understand it at the time. But the bottom line was the finances of the club deteriorated, and they deteriorated pretty significantly to a point where you know, Prince Renier felt that you know he needed some greater fiscal responsibility in the management of the finances of the club. And thus he appointed two of us, you know, one Madagascan, 
you know, myself you know, to represent him on the board of the club. What would the, um, well, given the quite particular, I guess, structure of Monaco and also being such a small town and country for that matter, um, what would the revenue and the business model look like? Would it be still roughly the same and the division between between revenue? Because looking at, you know, big club, big cities with big stadiums, typically, you know, you have match day tickets, you have the TV rights, uh, marketing, merchandising, and so on. No. Um, again, Monaco is a town of 35,000. We have a beautiful stadium of 18,000 seats. You know, we never sold out. I mean, yeah, we did sell out in the Champions League when we beat Real Madrid. No. You, you were there, sorry to interrupt, but you you were there when you went to the final. I was on the board when we went to yeah. the final. So I, I can take credit for being on the board, but you know I wasn't president. And <laughs> a Champions League final is a Champions League final. I'll I'll give you that it, it's one. It's what it is. We we had the pleasure of being there and you know hoping to be part of the winning team, and it, it was pretty close. But the reality of the economics of a club like Monaco is that you know it changed drastically in the '90s when TV started to hit. People forget. It's a bit like basketball. When I was at Amherst in the late 70s, you know, it was a time where you know, the Celtics and the 76ers, the Celtics and the Lakers you know, were the dominant teams in basketball. Well, guess what? It wasn't on TV. You know, we had to drive from Western Mass to Boston to have a chance to see the games. Uh, so the TV revenues were not there. Soccer was the same thing. You know, I told you earlier that you know, I made Michel Platini my hero. I remember when Saint-Étienne played in the Champions League, that was before Platini, but then when he came after it, you know, Saint-Étienne and Platini were sort of, sort of the team that I really liked. You know, those games were hardly on TV. You know, and, and therefore, those clubs lived of what? They lived of Gates. You know, a little bit of sponsoring, but there really wasn't very much. Uh, and trading of players was not all that common. Uh, players would typically spend their whole life in one club or two. You know, and Monaco in that context was not as, was not in a worse condition than other teams. As the 80s came and players started moving around and TV money started to hit, um, then clearly Monaco found himself at the forefront of the development of players because there were only so few clubs in France. You know, I could name Le Havre, uh, Auxerre, Nantes, maybe Sochaux. No, and Monaco, and Monaco was probably at the top of those because of where it was and you know, how well funded the club was. Uh, it's only in the mid nineties under the guidance of Gérard Oulier, you know, who you know, has become a good friend and who I'm sure meant well when he, in a way, imposed on all clubs to have their own academies that things changed again for us to the extent that no, there was not an overnight abundance of new talents, but instead of having all the talents spread among five clubs, now they were spread among 40, 20 in L1 and, and 20 in L2, now, which put pressure on clubs like Auxerre and Sochaux and Nantes and Le Havre and Monaco and had to, in a way, reinvent themselves, which they did up until the Bosman time when they were able to buy and sell players. There was this, there were those five years around the 98 World Cup where Clubs were just picking up players, even though they were not going to play. You know, if you took a player from an L2 team and you gave him a Monaco jersey and played him a game or two, you were going to double your money or triple your money. Um, 
until that point where the market got saturated and some clubs found themselves with more players that they knew what to do with and with no market. In the case of Monaco going forward, TV changed everything. You know, and this is why MLS is in such difficult situation that they sign a long-term deal that means no money for you know, the franchises. TV is the blood of soccer. It cannot live without it. And yes, you can do a little bit better by selling many season tickets, by bringing in a few sponsors. Uh, but your ability to bring season ticket holders, your ability to bring sponsors is also directly tied to how often you are on TV, how often you're being shown. And the money that the TV is going to pay you is very much based on you know, how successful you are in the championship. Each country has different formula. But at the end of the day, if it wasn't for TV, Monaco could not compete. And the same is true of the vast majority of the clubs in Europe with a tiny different version of that statement applied to the German clubs, which I think I find a somewhat more balanced economic model than the other countries. In 2012, you then you became the, the general manager at the New York Red Bulls. Mm -hmm. uh, one, uh, how did that come about? And two, uh, what was the first thing that you set out to do when you stepped in? You recall that my wife is from Austria, not Australia. She's from the town of Salzburg, uh, which it turns out is where Red Bull is headquartered. So we, we had some connection to Red Bull. But the opportunity with the soccer club really came through Gérard, Gérard Roulier, who had been appointed global head of soccer you know, the year before, and who, together with the owner of Red Bull, The two of them were driven to, you know, investing probably even more resources into the New York Red Bulls, trying to make it. And those are my words, not them, but that's what drove me in saying, well, that's an interesting venture to build the, okay, let's say the Real Madrid of North America, not to say the Bayern Munich of North America. Um, and I thought that despite all that I knew of MLS, Uh, that with this type of expertise and financial backing, that there was the opportunity to do something truly unique. Um, and with the Austrian connection and my daughter living in Salzburg, there were all sorts of things that at this stage of our lives, you know, drove my wife and I to say, well, it may only be for, you know, a year or two, uh, but since the kids are out of the house, you know, it'd be fun to, undertake such a challenge and potentially move to New York. And we did just that. You know, it lasted two years. It was a great experience. It was extraordinarily frustrating to deal with MLS, a lot more than I had expected. Um, and I think I've been pretty vocal in regards to how grateful I am that MLS saw the day at the time that it did, but how frustrated I am or disappointed that it has not evolved in a better direction than it has. Um, because we, we could be so much further along. And not to attack the present leadership, but I would still say that we would be much further along if we had had a better soccer leadership, uh, which lacks at MLS. Uh, you look at the top position at MLS, now one, two, three, four, and none of those people have ever played the game. And it's not that it is a requirement to have played the game, but it certainly should be part of the requirement. 
I mean, it shouldn't be the requirement, but it should be one of the requirements because it would avoid, you know, the mistake that have been done over the years. If you recall when MLS was started, it was, oh, we're going to make the goal larger, or no, we we're not going to do PKs, we're going to do shootouts because American like, you know, winners and and over the past twenty years, it's been a sequence of decisions that have in fact irritated soccer fans. You know, you would think that with all that's been done, all the investment that have been made, the stadium that have been built, the players who've been brought in, that the vast majority of soccer people in America would endorse, would embrace MLS. Well, it's just the opposite. And it's it's not just for Twitter that I mentioned earlier. I think it's for everything that you read. MLS cannot get some traction in terms of getting the soccer community to embrace it. And I, for one, believe that it's because we keep holding it back with those backward ideas that we're in America, so we, we cannot have promotion and relegation. How absurd is that? You, know, you, you look at games you know, every weekend, and I don't, don't watch that many, but I live in Chicago, so I keep hoping that there'll be a chance in Chicago and we'll have a a better team, and so I watched this weekend the fire play in Orlando City, and I stopped. It, it was so poor. I mean, the, the the level of the game. I know the game well enough to know that the players on the field didn't care. They were not driven. They were not playing for you know anything but the paycheck. I mean, the quality. You know, when Kaká plays. You know that you have someone who's been one of the best players in the world. But he too, you, you do see that when he should be making the run, you know, he doesn't. You know, he's deep down inside, maybe even unconsciously, he says, why? You know, why bother? You know, and players know that whether they make the playoff or don't make the playoff, they make the same money. There's hardly a bonus for winning the championship. There's hardly a chance to be traded for more money to another team. All the things which to you and most people who are listening who know the sport are fairly obvious, you know, the leadership keep arguing that it would be detrimental to the growth of the sport. Yeah, and I think they're wrong. On that note, what would you say, I know it's not a brief summary, but somewhat briefly, if let's say the top three changes that you would go about uh, to bring the MLS to where you would bring it? And let's be realistic. How, how, what would those be and how would those be implemented? It starts with the federation. No, MLS is one league. If tomorrow we had a group of billionaires wanting to, do, to turn the NASL into a bigger league than MLS, they could spend their money and probably get it done. But that would not achieve much more than what we have today. So we need a federation that demonstrates the willingness to apply the same FIFA rules in regards to promotion and relegation, also in terms of solidarity clause payments and training compensation payments to the US sin. And while maybe in 94, you know, at that time, it seemed like an impossible task, uh, it's no longer the case. So I think that the federation should give MLS three to five years. They should come up with a genuine plan to 
allow all teams from all leagues to prepare for an open competition. You have to be respectful of the money that has been spent in various MLS teams. But at the same time, you have to recognize that you know the present structure keeps the Chicago Fire, the worst team in the league, year in, year out. I mean, here's a team that won four games out of 22 this year. I think they won six last year and five the year before. And up until recently, you know, teams like Denver and Philly were the same. Well, luckily for them, they're better this year. But, you know, soccer will not get better in this country until we have real competition. So federation should show the way in terms of you know, how to implement within a certain time frame a proper movement of clubs from one level to another. And I guarantee you, most MLS owners will support it. What's the main argument against promotion or relegation? The argument is to defend the investment of MLS franchise owners. It was instituted on the basis that supposedly the NASL lost so much money in the mid to early, early to mid 80s that we had to create a league that could sustain itself. Now, interestingly enough, you know, the, the genesis of that was that we would create a league that would not lose money or where owners would not lose extensive sums of money. Um, and strangely enough, all those years later, now with 20 teams playing, Mark Abbott himself you know, said last year after the negotiation with the players' union that the league was losing over $100 million a year. And he wasn't very specific as to whether that meant you know, 200 million or 300 million and whether that included the individual results of, of the teams. And it's not to say that all the teams lose a lot, uh, but the very few teams that in fact break even. And I don't have any inside information. I just run the numbers. I just ask myself, you know, with the roster that they have and the number of tickets that they sell and what I know the TV revenues to be, and whatever you know, average sponsor deal throughout the year, they just can't make it. You know, so the reality, the very genesis of the reason why MLS was created has not been validated by the evolution of the league because 20 years later, it's losing more money every year than the NASL loss in its entirety during its whatever 12 or 15 years of existence. And therefore, you know, I think that there is a, a need for a change of leadership or for the present leadership to come to recognize that to get to where we should be, we need some structural changes. One of them is instituting promotion and relegation. The other one is recognizing the benefit of training compensation and salary payment so that our youth clubs become incentivized to perform. Now, we all complain that we're not developing players. Many people complain about pay-to-play um, but at the end of the day, those coaches need to be paid, and most youth clubs are non-for-profit. Um, and if, at the end of the day, all the good work that's done by some is to benefit the owners of the MLS franchise, you really are disenfranchising those clubs from doing what they should be doing. Uh, so, you know, back to your question, yes, promotion and allegation, I think, is key to uh, future success. I think the, the right player development structure, and we don't have the time to get into this, but certainly with the implementation of the training compensation and solidity clause payment are important. You know, and thirdly, you know, we need to you know, create better competition for a national team. You know, we just lost in the Olympics. It was an unfortunate loss, but 
you know, I for one had no sympathy for this, I forgot what they called it, you know, winning two or glorifying two and seeing a national team play Haiti twice and Northern Ireland just for money. I think that needs to change. You know, and you know, the Copa America being played in the US with our men's team playing the top team from South America is a major contributor, will be a major contributor to our success. So I think in regards to the national team program, find ways to expose a national team, women and men, youth and adult, to better competition year in, year out. Do you think it will happen? Yes, I do. I do. I'm fairly optimistic that the, you know, you remember I'm a trader, you know, and I believe in the market. I think the market will make it happen. You, you see how many people show up for Real Madrid, you know, friendly or MU friendly. Uh, for international games, you know that the audience is there. You just need to cater to that audience. And I think you know, you'd be a mistake to, not to recognize that what the signs are that the soccer population in America aspire to something far better than what's being offered. Will Jérôme de Bontan be part of it? I am part of it. You know, at my own level, I do a lot of interesting things. Um, I have my own personal aspiration of doing certain things. Um, it's not a matter of you know who is going to lead MLS. I think MLS eventually will have to implode. It's not a matter of who's going to lead the federation. The federation itself will evolve into different things. It's more a matter of getting large number of people you know, in decision-making position to recognize that those changes are needed. And if I can contribute to shaping the opinion and the mind of those, I'll be quite content. We're getting uh, towards the end here. I'm just going to shoot a set of uh, rapid-fire questions. Okay. If you want to elab- elaborate, feel free to do so, but this should be pretty quick. Your favorite team? AS Monaco. The deal, whether with a player or a team, that you're most proud of in your career? So the, the player that I've always imitated is Michel Platini. Um, the player who I think really impacted the generation of my family, children and so on, is Zinedine Zidane. Um, and I have developed a passion for the U.S. national team, um, in part because I believe in what Jürgen Klinsmann is doing. And remember, he's a former Monaco player. Yep. <laughs> uh, but because he, he gets it. You know, he, he understands that you know, we, we have to you know, evolve. And he made us all proud when we did so well in Rio two years ago and I'm optimistic he will do well for us in the future the deal that you're most proud of we're talking soccer so the, the best deal I did was selling Jeremy Menez to AS Roma when I presided over AS Monaco it was a deal that was difficult because Jeremy was still hurt uh, he had just had surgery um, we knew he wanted to leave uh, we knew we needed the money for him to leave so we had to find uh, a club that would see value in him and be willing to pay beyond its present value. Uh, it's one that I was very proud because it helped us a great deal to achieve a financial objective for the year. The best player you've worked with? By far, Thierry Henry. Now, I mentioned Platini and I mentioned Zidane. I think in his own way, you know, Titi you know, incarnated 
value that you would find with very few players. Unfortunately for me, in a way, you know, he really shined at Arsenal. Not that I'm not an Arsenal fan, but you know, he left Monaco pretty early on. And then when I ended working with him again, he was in the mid-30s and at a very different stage of his life. Um, but clearly a class-act individual. The most important characteristic to be successful in your position? Leave your ego at home. Understand numbers. And put in the hours. If I gave you a thousand dollars to place in a team as an investment or an organization, where would that be? Well, if it had to be in the U.S., um, of all the teams that I've looked at, I will mention one that will surprise you, but I think Detroit FC really has the opportunity of becoming something unique. They've managed out of a PDL organization to draw some serious fans. And when I say serious You know, it's easy to invite people to a game and give them beer and let, let them be loud and say that they are fine. That's not Detroit. Detroit is real soccer people uh, who really you know, believe in the sport and who've been behind that team from the get-go. So I don't know where they're going and I don't know who the owners are today, but I've often looked at their attendance numbers and I've looked at the performance on the field. And um, the $1,000, which, as you know, don't take you very far in the world of soccer, That's probably where I would put that money. One book recommendation. Kingdom of Eyes from Hampton Sides. Do you have anything you would like to recommend? I think the debate for you know, pay to play is not well perceived. Uh, I read too you know, many negative arguments vis-a-vis -vis something you know, without which the sport would not be where it is today. Let's not forget that You know, we have more players than any other country with potentially the exception of Germany. Uh, but just to compare France and the U.S. who just played at the Olympics, we have over three and a half million registered female players in America. France doesn't have a hundred thousand. And that population of players you know, is growing up through the rank or through a society that's structured very differently from everything we know in Europe. Now, whether it's the appetite for sports in general, the desire to play for your high school, or the ability to use sport to promote yourself and receive better education, the end result is that we seem to be successful in every sport. And look at you know, the male count at the Olympics in Rio. You know, we're far ahead from everybody else. And in most instances, when other countries have athletes that win medal, the athletes that have trained on our university campuses. So we seem to be doing something right in all sports. I believe we're doing it right on the women's side uh, because we are respectful of the environment that we are in and the culture that we are part of. On the men's side, I think we make that mistake of so wanting to import systems from Europe that are just not applicable to our world here. And that maybe we should learn from the women's success to do more of it, more of the structure that's in place with the women, with the men, and that we might reach better results than we have recently. So the, the pay-to-play pay to system has a role to play, the world to play, <laughs> but it, it's something that needs to be nurtured, not criticized. Lastly, who do you think I should interview here next? I think in the context of everything we discuss, uh, Alan Rothenberg is the gentleman that you should try to invite 
because he's the one person who can give you a very broad uh, perspective on what has happened, how things have evolved, and where we are. And I believe he's the right person to talk to. Maybe you know somebody who can put in a good word. <laughs> I probably can. Jérôme, <laughs> uh, uh, th- thank you very much. I, I very much appreciate this conversation. Uh, I, I wish we can, or down the road, I hope we can do an episode two and a three and a four, because I think there's much more to cover. Uh, but, but thank you. Thank you so much for this. I mean, this really, uh, gives a true, true glimpse in, in, into this world and, and also some very tangible, uh, recommendations that I think we can learn a lot from. So, uh, thank you. Best of luck in the future. And, and I look forward to following you. Well, thank you for hosting the show. I always like to talk about soccer and don't hesitate to invite me back. I absolutely will. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe to it in iTunes or on the podcast app. Please write a review. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to email me at sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com. You can also link up with me via Twitter. It's at coffeesfootball. Check out the coffeeandfootball.com website. There you'll find any related content and additional info on each guest. This show also lives on SoundCloud and Acast. Thanks again. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.